0: Listener production. A quick disclaimer before we get started. Although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. All the content and information discussed in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Remember, always consult your doctor before making any decisions about your health. On a seemingly normal Tuesday night in Manchester, England... The 25th of July 1978, a miracle happened. And it weighed five pounds and 12 ounces. Just before midnight, one Miss Louise Joy Brown was born to parents Leslie and Peter. To her parents, she was just Louise, but to the world, she was the first IVF baby. Back then, they were called test tube babies, which is a little confusing because test tubes play more of a supporting role in the IVF process. You could spit in a Petri dish and start a whole new civilization. Nonetheless, Louise's birth became a beacon of hope for the one in eight heterosexual couples who couldn't conceive naturally. And for those in same-sex relationships or single parents who dreamt of having a biological family of their own, a new window had opened. Today, more than 10 million children have been born thanks to IVF. But to understand how it works, we need to take a little sidestep into the old-fashioned way. Uh, uh, Uh-uh-uh, not in the bedroom, in the brain, of course.
1: Get your mind out of the gutter.
0: Fifteen days before fertilization can happen, the anterior pituitary gland, a tiny little pea-sized nodule on the right-hand side of the brain, secretes follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH. This tells the ovarian follicle the vine on which an egg grows
1: Hey, hey you, I really think a baby seems like a good idea.
0: To which the follicle says Ugh, you always
1: say that. Some of us didn't survive the last month, you know. And look, she's been in track pants for two weeks, Bob. Doesn't really scream I'm ready for a baby to leave. But they're so cute.
0: Fine. The follicle then starts ripening a single egg releasing oestrogen, which signals back to the brain Hey Bob, this one is shaping up real
1: nice I reckon we've got a couple more days before she's ready Oh my god, oh my god, oh my
0: god Trevor, start preparing the troops When oestrogen levels are at their peak it's a sign that the egg has reached maturity and the brain uh-huh. It's
1: happening boys, the time for ovulation is upon us Get the troops, it's about to go down
0: By troops we mean luteinising hormone It tells the follicle to release the egg for ovulation, and the follicle obliges. The egg travels down the fallopian tubes where it waits for its fate. If the egg isn't fertilized, the follicle disintegrates. But don't worry, a new one takes shape the very next month and the whole cycle starts again. But if the egg is fertilized, the follicle hangs around to produce progesterone, a hormone that's required to maintain the pregnancy. Unfortunately, it's a certain death for our friend, the follicle, because when the placenta shows up at around six to seven weeks... Sayonara, baby. So how can this innate process be replicated in a lab? Well, the first step of IVF is telling the follicle to produce multiple eggs. Not one, many. And they do this by giving mum an injection of that same hormone the body produces, FSH. Once those eggs have reached maturity in the safety of the ovary, the eggs are retrieved from the follicle using a suction device and needle. And once retrieved, the eggs are left to mature in a special concoction on a Petri dish in an incubator. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. About a day later, the egg is fertilized. There's a couple of different ways to do this, but either way, about 70% of the eggs retrieved will be fertilized. Then it's on to embryo development. Imagine that cells actively dividing right under your very eyes. Well, the eyes of the lab technician and those technicians closely monitor the embryo's progress until it's time for it to be transferred to the uterus, about five days after. And just like that, the road to possible parenthood has been paved. Bob the brain? None the wiser. Because the IVF process essentially mimics the natural reproductive cycle outside of the uterus. It's like short-cutting a circuit. I know, it doesn't have quite the same appeal of rosebuds and candles by the fireplace, but it's a marvel of science that's helped millions of people become parents. So, is IVF a sure bet then? Does age even matter? And what else should people on the IVF journey expect? Hi, I'm Dr. Sneha Wadwani. I'm a women's health GP and advocate, and this is Everything From A to V, the podcast separating the fact from the fiction when it comes to women's health. Here we'll answer some of the most common questions I get asked by women just like you, and we'll debunk a few myths along the way too.
1: But we were discussing matters of the vagina, Bruce, not the heart.
0: In today's episode, we'll be joined by Prof. William Ledger, or as I like to call him, Prof. the Ledge Ledger. He has over 30 years of experience in fertility, obstetrics and gynaecology. He's a bit of a guru when it comes to IVF and he's here to talk us through the IVF process. So Prof Ledger, it is an absolute privilege to have you with us on the podcast today. As you know, I'm a GP and I see a lot of patients that come through my women's health clinic. And I find myself these days having more and more conversations with women, you know, approaching 30 or in their 30s might be on contraception and really having to dive in there with a proactive intervention about fertility, you know, really introducing the idea um, and the conversation around that. And and I think, you know, it'd be really good to let's debunk a little bit what happens in that space. Do eggs actually dry up? What happens to them as we get older um, for everybody listening there? So what's your version?
1: Uh, sure. When I explain this to people, Snay, I begin by saying that biology is unfair to women in many ways. And one of the ways is that men can still be a dad when they're in their 60s. And we see these movie stars in their 70s now having children. And women can't do that. So the difference is that men make new sperm all the time. And it only takes about 70 days to make sperm. Whereas the woman is born with all the eggs for her whole life as a baby. And from before birth until she hits a menopause, the egg number just declines and declines and declines. It's a slow process, but medicine does not know how to slow it down further. We can't stop it. What happens to the eggs? Only ovulate one egg a month, obviously. So in her whole lifetime, even not using contraception or not pregnant, a woman will ovulate about 200 eggs. The other 99% of the egg store Become atretic, they just within the ovary naturally die. They become little fibrous particles. And that, I guess, is the basis of the biological clock that's ticking for all of us in so many other ways. But it's harsh in the 21st century because for lots of reasons, people, men and women, are delaying being parents. And so, whereas in the past, most people would be pregnant in their 20s before the pill in the 1960s, women couldn't really control very easily their fertility. So they'd often be a mom in their 20s. Running out of good eggs in their 40s didn't matter.
0: But there is also this concept and this thought, I think, that they'll just do IVF as a backup. You know, IVF is there and that will, you know, sort it out for me if I don't manage to fall pregnant naturally. And I think that's often a misconception. You know, IVF isn't a fix-all. You know, there are some things that even IVF can't do.
1: Oh, you're completely right. And a few years ago, we did a, one one of those surveys where a company would ring a 1,000 people of a certain demographic around Australia. And we got them to ring men between 25 and 35 who were not fathers. And we asked a 1,000 men around Australia, you know, are you interested in parenthood and a few things about facts that they might know or not know. And over 90% wanted to be a dad. It was important to them. Wow. 80% didn't realize about female fertility not being so good at 45 as it is at 35. And they felt they had a lot longer. And so there is a knowledge gap. But please don't use IVF as a backup. It's a wonderful thing. And it's made a huge difference to literally millions and millions of families around the world. But it's not something to do unless you have to do it. It's hard. It's medicalizing perfectly healthy people. It doesn't work all that well, even in the best centers around the world. And it doesn't work well if you're much over 40. So someone who's just, you know, for good reason, waited and then relies on IVF and comes to see an IVF specialist age 44, we're going to struggle to help.
0: You know, when I see patients in my clinic who've, you know, not necessarily been successful in falling pregnant, they've sort of, you know, if they've got no problems, they've tried for about a year, they're young, nothing's happening and they want that onward referral. What they're asking me for is an onward referral for IVF. And I think what people tend to not realize is there are so many other options. There's ovulation induction, there's IUI, there's there's so many other options to conceive before or aside from IVF, aren't there? And And I think that's important to talk about.
1: Oh, it is. Again, because we're trying to treat the patient we're trying to help the woman the partner who want to have a child and to me IVF is like the big gun you might have to shoot it but it's often not the first thing you need to use we can be much more gentle so you're absolutely right start at the beginning if someone comes with a problem in medicine you do the investigations first you listen to their story you might get clues what's going wrong it might be as simple as not timing their intercourse at the right time It might be as simple as stopping a medication. A lot of women are using non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. It doesn't allow them all to have a good ovulation. Just stopping something like that can help. So small things. Then you move on and always in medicine, start with the most simple and then move to the more complicated. And so, yes, it might be something as simple as helping her to ovulate better if the woman has a slightly rocky menstrual cycle, doesn't have the period at the right time each month. Simple tablets you can take to make that happen. If the man has borderline poor sperm, not terrible, but just in your borderline, putting the sperm in the uterus at the right time of the month, a bit like having a pap smear, can be all it takes. Surgery, quite often, something simple, maybe removing a fibroid or removing an ovarian cyst, treating endometriosis. All of these things can be done laparoscopically, keyhole surgery, one or two days in hospital, and then you have a natural pregnancy which to my mind is always preferable to a high-tech one from from IVF. So sometimes you've got to go straight there. If the man has terrible sperm, if the woman has blocked fallopian tubes, maybe if she's older, maybe if she wants three children and she's 36, so you can freeze embryos. Maybe if they've got a genetic problem that you want to test the embryos before you put them back. All those things mean you've got to go high-tech from day one. And there are plenty of places around Australia that can do that. The cost is high. The psychology is fascinating. It's so often, I think, a couple who don't have a profound problem, part of it is just stress and exhaustion from work and not having much sex. And if, if the man knows that he might be hit with a bill for thousands of dollars in three months' time, it, it'll improve his sex drive <laughs> no end because he's trying, trying to save money maybe. I don't know. He's never been studying. Maybe that's the drive.
0: That's your next study bill, I reckon. So what's the success rate with IVF then these days? You know, it it clearly isn't always going to be successful. So what what can people expect?
1: Again, one thing I'm quite proud of is that my, my good friend and colleague, Professor Georgina Chambers, runs the Your IVF Success Rate website, which is funded by the federal government. And every clinic in Australia is on there. And anyone who's interested can go and look at their own chances of having a baby through IVF. There's a calculator that you can put your own data. And you can look at success rates related to the woman's age predominantly for any of the clinics in your state. And, you know, it helps people to choose. So the short answer is go get the data for your own self. Someone who's under 35 who has a male partner with reasonably good sperm is going to have an IVF and she'll have a good pregnancy from one embryo transfer, single embryo, so no twins, just under 50% of the time. Someone who's 40, same position, will have a good pregnancy maybe between 10 and 15% of the time. And say the other thing which is good these days, frozen embryos work as well as fresh. For years, we struggled to freeze embryos. It didn't work well. Pregnancy rates were low, but the big change came 12, 13 years ago with vitrification, just like you get your garden peas that are snap frozen in the field almost, snap freezing eggs means, or embryos both, means that they are viable after you thaw them. So someone who doesn't have a fresh embryo transfer but uses frozen embryos, the chance of a baby is just as high.
0: That's fantastic. And just on that, Bill, Um, freezing eggs, freezing embryos, is is one better than the other in terms of success rates from pregnancy?
1: Oh, absolutely. An embryo is a tough little thing. When we freeze it, it's got about 200 cells. One memorable time, I actually dropped them when I was trying to do an embryo transfer. (laughs) They were still in the little transfer tube, thankfully, so we reloaded them, and she had twins, that lady. So you can be quite robust with embryos. An egg is a single cell. Freezing it and then thawing it is much harder to do. So I'd rather have four frozen, no, I'd rather have one frozen embryo than four frozen eggs at the same age. But that doesn't really answer the question because the women who are freezing eggs usually don't have a male partner. So they don't have the option of one or the other. And egg freezing works well. Again, women under 36. There's some nice little calculators on the internet people can access. But if they can freeze about 12 eggs, they have a much better than 50% chance of one baby. If you're 40, you've got to freeze 100 eggs to get that chance. And that's not practical. So we try and discourage the older group from doing egg freezing if we can.
0: And I think it's really tricky, isn't it? Because there is this issue of the number of eggs, you know, but there's also this issue about egg quality. There is often a poor understanding of I find, is that if you want more than one child and you're already 31, 32, you really need to be thinking about moving quite quickly because squeezing in two or three children before the egg quality starts to be affected is a real issue. And that can be affected from the age of sort of 35 onwards, can't it, Bill?
1: Exactly right. And the job for people like us who are kind of advising women and and men also about these things is is to get the balance right. So one example, I saw someone just recently, she was about 28. And we measure this hormone called AMH that gives you kind of the egg count. And a normal AMH for a 28-year-old should be between probably 20 and 30. And she'd been to her doctor and she'd done her AMH and the level was two. And you can believe how much panic that causes in someone. This was a, a smart intelligent person in a good job not with a partner she's only 28 why should she be and suddenly this kind of blow from nowhere comes and and hits her where it hurts the most her whole life plan was derailed just happened to be that she'd been on the contraceptive pill non-stop for the past eight years because of pelvic pain and what have you and women on the continuous pill will often knock down their amh to a greater less extent so you stop the pill six weeks later measure the amh it's gone back up to 25
0: Thank goodness. A nice
1: piece of news for the doctor to break to the patient. We always like breaking nice news, don't we? Yeah. And I said to her, you're 28, you're fine. Don't worry about freezing eggs or doing IVF or anything complicated. Do what your mom did and your grandma and your great-grandma. Go out, meet someone nice, fall in love and have your family. Because I think 28, for a healthy person with a normal egg reserve, is too early to start worrying about all this stuff. We, we love worrying people these days. However, you're right, if I was the father of a daughter and she was in her 30s and she would be probably on her third degree, having gone around the world 10 times and had lots of partners but no one serious, I'd say to her, look, you're 33, do two things. Measure your AMH, look at your egg reserve, and if you're not in a position to start your family soon, maybe think about freezing eggs when you hit your 35th birthday. It's a nice present for the prospective grandparents to buy for the daughter, I suppose. So... (laughs) That's the kind of, the turning point is mid thirties. And the first question I get my junior doctors to ask when they're seeing patients in our fertility clinic as a, to a couple is how many children do you want? Because it defines so clearly what the expectations are of those two people. And the fun one, Snay, is when the, the man might say three and she says one, and then you'd have to let them fight it out. If they do want three kids, 35 is probably, even for someone with a good egg reserve, is as late as you should leave it because nine months pregnant, probably at least a year before you can think about trying again with the newborn. Two years has passed, you'll be 37 for the second and up to 40 for the third. And a lot of people find that the egg quality, the egg decline is is becoming acute at that age.
0: I think you're absolutely right. Let's talk a bit about the AMH, because it's now becoming the fertility test. You know, I get lots of patients coming in now going, I want the fertility test. (laughs) And and they're referring to the AMH, aren't they? And uh, I think it's really important that they understand what it's actually telling them. It isn't the be-all and end-all, but it's a really useful indicator to guide, you know, planning and all the rest of it, isn't it?
1: Well, I think we called this podcast debunking IVF or something. So let's try and debunk AMH. I I beg slightly to differ because in many ways, it does more harm than good. I just gave you one example where someone's perfectly stable, happy life was turned upside down by an AMH. If you do it, you've got to understand it. This is the key thing. Now, I know you well, and you're, you're very smart in women's health, and you'll be able to explain to someone what an AMH means. But if they just go and get it from their local doctor who they've never met before, who just writes the referral and they get the report off the Internet. No, you've got to put it in context. It only tells you your egg number, not the egg quality. So even if you have a low AMH, if you're 32, you're fertile. You'll probably be pregnant if you try within one or two years. Pick me a beautiful man with good sperm, by the way. That's a very important part of this. We're going to talk about that later. We
0: all want that.
1: Wouldn't it be great if men with good sperm, I don't know, had a longer nose or something? Whatever. No, if you do your AMH, even if it's low, it doesn't mean you're not fertile now. It's much more dependent on your age. But it, it gives you a clue about the future. So if you have an AMH which is low at age 30, you don't have quite as long to finish your family than someone who has a high AMH at age 30. If you're using the combined oral contraceptive pill, the standard pill, the microgynon, the level in all of those, that can suppress AMH by a variable degree. And the only way to find out is to stop for at least a month, don't get pregnant and do the AMH. The progesterone only pill, the mini pill, the Mirena, the coil will not suppress AMH. So women using those methods can do their AMH test if they want to.
0: So what does it mean to be fertile then for a woman? I think you've talked a bit about the number of eggs, you know, egg quality and age. I guess it's all those parameters together, right?
1: And a lot more beside, because the egg is only part of the equation. So the standard investigations that we do for someone who's struggling is yes, we look at some hormones, we look at the the AMH, we look at their FSH to check that that's not too high. A high FSH means less eggs. We can see whether they ovulate. If they have a regular monthly period, they probably do, but you can measure progesterone. But also we want to do an ultrasound to make sure that the pelvis is healthy, that the uterus is healthy, that the ovaries are healthy. You haven't got ovarian cysts or endometriosis or fibroids or any of those things that would be an anatomical problem to fertility. And thirdly, we want to check the fallopian tubes are open so the egg can get into the uterus. So it's more than just eggs.
0: And I think just from a, a GP perspective as well, it's more than just eggs and lady bits. It's also about general health, isn't it? You know, controlling all the other stuff as well, making sure that they're you know adequately immunised, making sure that their health otherwise is good, their nutritional status is good, you know, and, and there's no other chronic conditions uh, that are uncontrolled in the background. So it's very much a holistic picture. But what about for men? what does fertility mean to them? Is it just about the sperm count or is it more than that?
1: No, come on, it is more than that. So no, it takes two to tango. And we tend to neglect the males because often this is driven by the woman. She's the one who wants to be pregnant. Obviously, she'll be carrying the baby. So it's important to see people as a couple. But yes, the man can do a sperm test. Nine times out of 10, that's fairly easy to do. We do like them to come and produce the sample at the lab, which can be difficult for some guys to do because they kind of get stage fright. Sometimes it's impossible to get a sperm sample from a man. He either can't do it in the lab, so we might allow him to do it at home with advice as to what to do, or he doesn't ejaculate any sperm, in which case we can do a surgery sometimes to collect sperm from within the testicles. But the couple have also got to have a happy sex life. And it's amazing how often when you open up that discussion, and I'm sure you see it in general practice, suddenly a whole heap of stuff comes out because someone in medicine has been brave enough to ask a slightly personal question, which the couple or the woman or the man have been dying to discuss, but they weren't initiated because they're too embarrassed. You'll see men with erectile dysfunction in their 30s. These days, a lot of young men use Viagra for sexual potency, and they become addicted, and then it doesn't work anymore, and they find it very hard to have sex with someone. Or they don't understand when the woman is fertile in her monthly cycle, so they might be trying at the wrong time. There's all kinds of things that can be difficult in a sexual relationship with with two people. Often they can be helped pretty easily. But if people don't ask that question, it doesn't get answered. And they, obviously, it's at the core of having children is being able to make love with each other.
0: And and look, I think, you know, for, for certainly for couples out there, you know, GPs can order semen analysis. Yep. But also, you know, I think there's so many conditions that can affect men and their ability to, you know, conceive children in this space, you know, ranging from childhood trauma to the scrotum and testes. You know, it can be occupational stuff. Uh, you know, it used to be, you know, those truck drivers sitting on top of the engine in the cabin of the truck. Sometimes it's, you know, even other things that can overheat the genital area in men. So those gentlemen who are cycling a lot or sitting with their laptop on their lap, and even things like retrograde ejaculation. And and there's, you know, there's so many things that we can do in this space to help these gentlemen as well.
1: Oh, there are. And again, some nice bits of general advice. So if people are trying for a baby, then lifestyle improvement for the man is as important as for the woman. So, you know, small alcohol, try not to smoke, don't do any other drugs that you might be using for recreation if you can help it. Marijuana particularly, you can can tell if a guy's smoking a lot of marijuana because the sperm are very slow they stop moving well and they can't get up to the egg. They're just stone sperm. And often (laughs) if the man is able to stop, it improves. The testicles like to be cool. The reason they're outside of the body is they should be cooler than core temperatures. So I tell people there's a bit of evidence. If you put cool water in the shower for four minutes in the morning, time it on your iPhone. And the other one, which is great fun for 16-year-olds, but hard for a 30-year-old is frequent ejaculation which is a bit of a burden for a lot of people, but it's like a motor car. If you use the engine every day, it runs better. So trying to ejaculate at least once every two days or more often will improve sperm quality, not by a huge amount, but that might be enough to push over the age and get the pregnancy.
0: Yeah, there's some fantastic tips there. So the first IVF baby was born in 1978, which isn't actually that long ago. So how have we evolved in the IVF space? What's happened with technology? Has it changed much?
1: I was a medical student when Louise Brown was born, and it inspired me. I thought it was amazing. And at the time, there was a, a, a real duality. So half of the press said, you know, wonderful thing, science can finally help someone have a child who have a family. But the other half demonized it. You know, this is against the will of the Lord, and it shouldn't be done. It's unnatural. And so for a lot of years, women doing IVF were stigmatised and it was something to be a bit ashamed of, a bit quiet of. And thankfully now it, it's moved on. One baby in 18, born in Australia, is now an IVF kid.
0: That's an amazing statistic.
1: Isn't it lovely? that In anyone's kindy class, there's going to be one or two children born from IVF and everybody knows someone who's done it these days. Yeah? And so I've kind of been in it from the start. I was working in Edinburgh in Scotland and my boss was the top reproductive endocrine doctor in the UK. He was a terrifying man. So from what I first saw in 1978 to now, things have moved on enormously in many ways, but one of the best is it's far more patient friendly. It's a lot easier and more gentle and less prone to side effects than it was in the past, less risky. Um, We have a, in, in, University of New South Wales. We we curate the world database on IVF, and last year there was not one recorded death from an IVF-related problem in the whole world. So, and that's with millions of cycles of treatment. So, the safety, perhaps the most important of all, is now well proven, and and it is safe to do.
0: It's incredible that it's become so accessible and so much safer on so many levels. And so, just touching on that, then Bill, you know patients can be really worried about financially you know how it's going to affect them if they if they go uh, down the sort of fertility IVF route i think it's going to cost them gazillion dollars so you know on average you know per cycle what kind of what can an Aussie patient or an Aussie couple rather expect to pay
1: firstly if you're looking at IVF make sure that you do look at the costs closely and get a financial quote which is valid so you know what you're going to have to spend ahead of time and any reputable clinic will do that. Costs vary. There's a number of places that do low-cost IVF that works perfectly well for the less complicated case. Not the place to go if you have a complicated medical condition or you know things are, are not straightforward. But the low-cost clinics, one or two thousand dollars, including the medications for one go, keep in mind, depending on how it goes, you might need two or three goes. So it will mount up. Most IVF clinics around Sydney and the other big metropolitan areas give a higher quality in the sense of more contact with your doctor, more contact with the clinic, bigger range of treatments, and willing to take on the more complex cases that maybe require some surgical work doing, etc. cetera. So there's a difference in terms of offering. So often I'll get a phone call from a patient, I'm being billed for 11000 but that's because they forgot that they get the rebate back And say, maybe you can explain to me why Medicare makes you pay and then gives you the money back within a week. It seems inefficient. Why don't they just not charge you in the first place? But it's the only game in town. And it is a very, very helpful and generous thing that Australia does for people doing IVF that you literally do get between four and five thousand back per cycle. So the true out-of-pocket cost is is mitigated quite a
0: lot. Uh, I can't answer the Medicare question. I don't. I don't. <laughs> it's beyond, <laughs> it's beyond <much>. me. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I can't answer that question. But you're absolutely right. And I think you've really touched on an important point there, you know, because people don't necessarily know that there's a, a Medicare rebate. And it is a decent chunk of money. It does help quite a lot. When women start the IVF process, or indeed, any of the fertility treatments. They're sometimes required to take medications and hormones, aren't they? And those aren't easy. That isn't easy to do. You know that they, they have lots of side effects. They can make them feel really quite different, both physically and psychologically. Um, how's best to prepare for that? And how, what advice do you give women in that space and and their partners? <laughs>
1: It's stressful. Often this is, you know, a young person's first serious contact with healthcare. These are, as I said, they're totally healthy people who are having to be medicated to just to have a family, to have a baby that most people can do without too much of a trouble. So the main hormone that we use is called FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. It's natural. In IVF, we want to give the lab a number of eggs to work with. So the injection they have once a day is FSH to boost the number of eggs. The target is somewhere between eight and 14 eggs. So FSH comes in a little pen injector, like an EpiPen or a diabetic pen. You put it into the front of your tummy wall once a day. The rest depends on what you're trying to do. So if you're trying to have a fresh embryo transfer to have a baby, you would have the FSH injection in total for about 12 days. You might have a second shot for the last four or five days to stop you ovulating early, otherwise we've lost all the eggs. A couple of ultrasound scans to make sure that the eggs are growing properly, usually along with the blood test. And then when the egg follicles are the right size, the final injection is called the trigger, which makes the eggs mature. And that starts the clock because that woman is going to ovulate about 42 hours after the trigger. So we do the egg collection procedure at 36 hours. If you wait too long, the eggs have gone. That does happen occasionally, thankfully rarely. So as you say, that is stressful. Nobody ever wants to inject themselves with hormones. It's a very major challenge for someone doing it for the first time. Often the partner will do the injections. That can cause problems. Um, you know, She believes he didn't quite do it right. You, know, you missed or there was a drop left. You can imagine the, the stress. feel a bit sorry for the poor men in that circumstance sometimes. People get through, but you do have to warn them that yeah, you will be more brittle, than usual you 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 won't be calm you'll be more reactive to stress you might feel bloated and with fluid retention in the last few days i encourage people to stay busy i encourage people to go to work and keep active and you know you can often cope with these things better when your mind is distracted day off for the egg collection most people would have a light anesthesia for that you can do it with what we call the green whistle which you breathe and it sends you a bit giddy a bit high. So that puts the eggs in the lab. The man will give us a sperm sample the same day, or we might use frozen sperm. So sperm and egg together, if the sperm quality is poor, use ICSI to inject the sperm into the egg, make the embryos, grow them for five days. Sooner or later, you'll have an embryo transfer. Woman will come to the clinic with a full bladder. She'll have an ultrasound just with a tummy ultrasound probe and the embryo is put into the uterus, it's like having a pap smear with the vaginal speculum to see the cervix. Usually takes 10 or 15 minutes. Whole process, two weeks of the injections and the egg collecting, five days in the lab, embryo transfer. That's the tightest we can do it in about three weeks. Once you've done the embryo transfer, you wait 12 days, do a pregnancy test. If it's positive, wait two and a half weeks, do a scan. You can see a heartbeat, which I still think is pretty remarkable.
0: It's amazing. Um, So what advice, Bill, do you have for women embarking on their IVF journey?
1: Be sure it's what you want to do. Talk to other people. Most know someone else who's done it. Yes, you can get the professional help and support. Clinics these days almost all have good counsellors. The nurses are chosen to be empathic and they're well-trained and they, they, they can help you. Obviously, your doctor can help, but you need a more global support than that if you can. Be certain if you have a partner that your partner's on side. Be certain that you've at least negotiated this with work ahead of time, so you can have your day off in the middle. You may not wish work colleagues to know; that's fine. But you need a strategy to manage the the appointments for the scans. We do them early morning. Appointment for the day when you're going to have the egg collection and so forth. So that there's some time commitment. Keep busy, and look ahead. Keep in your mind a picture of you as a mom with a little child and how beautiful that would be. And I don't know, I have this picture of of someone on the beach with a three-year-old and a big ball blowing in a breeze and the ball blows down to the the water's edge and the little child runs after it and you've got to jump up because that's your child. You've got to stop getting in the water, you know? And I think, you know, looking beyond the medical process to the other end of it, when it works, it's the most beautiful thing you'll ever do.
0: Oh, Bill, what a lovely way to end our pod chat today. Um, you are a legend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm I'm so honoured and privileged to call you a colleague. So thank you very much indeed.
1: No, come on, a friend and a colleague. It's lovely to talk with you. And uh, thanks for inviting me. It's been fun to do.
0: So there you have it. IVF is a miraculous thing, but it's not always a sure bet. So if you're worried about your fertility, make sure to consult with your doctor or fertility specialist especially if you've got a family history of infertility or you're nearing the age of 40. There are lots of things we can do to improve reproductive health, and some of them have more to do with lifestyle than biology. Remember, every person's reproductive health is different, and every relationship is different. So consult with your doctor about the right solution for you. Be sure to join us next week for more debunked myths and your health questions answered. This podcast is a listener production hosted by me, Snay Wadwani. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with sound design by Kelly Falston. Listener.